Welcome to Oncopharma. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here and our supporting sponsor, ETSU's Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. This episode is going to release on September 22nd, 922. And just a little bit of uh, maybe inside baseball here is in in the early years of the podcast, I would record a lot of episodes in advance. Uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, like the, the foundations of Oncofarm or landmarks of Oncofarm uh, episodes, uh, a lot of those released in in the fall teaching semester because I have a class on Thursday afternoons when the podcasts usually drop every other Thursday from 1 to 4, which really puts a, uh, a damper on my podcasting habit. So this is another one, and, and we've covered most of the drugs now in, in, as far as the foundations of Oncofarm, so I'm having... Um, trouble finding stuff to, to maybe record in advance, as well as the time. Who has the time? Anyway, 922. Um, and I know that outside of the United States, we don't always call dates by month, followed by uh, date of the month. But we do that here. 922 uh, is maybe a, a date that we should revere in hematology oncology because it is um, one of the most, the most probably important oncogene. Translocation 922. So we'll do a, a brief history of translocation 922 uh, today. So we start back in 1959 uh, with David Hungerford and Peter Noel. Uh, Hungerford was a junior research fellow at Fox Chase, which is in Philadelphia. He went on to get his PhD from Penn in 1961. And Noel was a pathologist who was working on a dissertation for uh, on human chromosomes. And you can find this information on uh, Fox Chase's website. Now, this was the early days of chromosomal preparation, and up to this point, no one had identified a chromosomal abnormality in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia. Well, they had looked at, uh, they saw two patients with CML, and they found that in both these patients, chromosome number 22 was shorter than it should be from everyone else. And they were, you know, they presented their findings in the, the journal of the National Cancer Institute in 1960. And uh, it took a while for everyone to kind of believe this because they were, they were, you know, they were not, they were juniors. They weren't seniors. They weren't well-established thinkers in medicine. Uh, and I just want to point out for any trainees listening that the Rye staging system for CLL, uh, Rye was a fellow when he put that together. It was either Cockroft or Galt. I can't remember. But one of those uh, gentlemen was, I believe, a medical student on a nephrology rotation when when they devised the Cockroft-Galt equation that all pharmacists uh, know by heart to help dose chemotherapy. Uh, so anyway, um, <clears throat> this was then further replicated that, you know, people with CML tend to have this chromosome, this, this shorter 22 chromosome that was first identified by these researchers at Fox Chase in Philadelphia. That's how we got the Philadelphia chromosome. And we conventionally nowadays, I'd always thought, well, the Philadelphia chromosome is 922. But if you go back to the year origins, the Philadelphia chromosome was just a shorter chromosome number 22 on one side. Now, when we go back on these deep dives, I like to look at some pop culture stuff to go along with it. In 1960, in the United States, if you look at the Billboard Top 100 Songs by Week, Elvis Presley had the number one song in America for 14 weeks out of the year. That's 27% of the year, Elvis Presley, the king, number one song in America. Three different songs, Stuck on You for four weeks, it's now or never for six weeks, which I don't know. Uh, are you lonesome tonight for five weeks, okay? So anyway, Elvis, he was the king for a reason. 
So that was 1959 they made this discovery, 1960 when they did their initial publication. And the dates are a little bit hard to, to know for sure going back when things were identified versus when they were published as far as kind of a paper trail for that. All right, so let's fast forward to 1973, uh, which is when Janet Rowley had her publication, which I have in front of me, copied from the library, published in Nature uh, in 1973, uh, her first uh, uh uh, basically suggestion that it was an actual translocation of chromosomes 9 and 22 in patients with CML. Nine patients with CML. Uh, she was working at the University of Chicago, um, which was a founding member of the Big Ten Athletic Conference. Uh, so nine patients with CML, all nine had this deletion of this 22Q deletion on their chromosomes. Um, and this was the this was the first time that this was done. Now Janet Rowley, first of all, 1973 to be a, a female um, working in medicine to have a, a publication in Nature by herself must have been something. Uh, quite a lady. Um, and there's um, so just like uh, Fox Chase has their whole write up about the Philadelphia chromosome. Um, uh, University of Chicago also has has some stuff on their website about Janet Rowley. And her parents and uh, her parents had gone to the University of Chicago. So, despite growing up in New York, they moved back. Her parents moved back to Chicago, where she ultimately went to school. Uh, and her kids would make fun of her uh, as an adult for bringing home chromosome pictures of chromosomes and cutting them out the way you and you. They'd have to. We did this in, in undergrad uh, biology or something. You'd you'd have all these pictures of, of chromosomes and you have to cut them out and figure out which is chromosome one, which is chromosome two based on what they look like, kind of like a puzzle and put them together. So she did all that and became kind of an expert in chromosomal uh, analysis. And, and it had been, uh, you know, thought that, you know, the, the same p amount of chromosome material that's missing from chromosome 22 seems to be on chromosome nine. And she's the one uh, who, who, who first published that. So Janet Rowley, a name that everybody, uh, everybody should know. By the way, 1973, when, when she published this, the number one uh, grossing movie uh, in America that year was The Exorcist. Number two was The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman, one of my favorite movies. Worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Okay, so that's, that's where we get the translocation 922. First started with an observation just looking at the chromosomes uh, that 22 was shorter. And then Janet Rowley put together that part of uh, chromosome 9 and part of chromosome 22 switch places. Now, chromosome 22 has BCR, the breakpoint cluster region. Chromosome 9 has the ABLE gene, which then encodes for the ABLE kinase. So translocation 922, this, uh, this switcheroo on the chromosome leads to uh, the, trans the BCR ABLE gene that then encodes for mRNA, for BCR-ABLE transcript. That's what we actually measure when you do the RT-PCR, which then is uh, trans, uh, translated into a protein that, <clears throat> that leads to constitutive activation of CML, for, CML cells, for example. Um, now, as we wrap up, there are several different fusion products. There's the P190 that has to do with the, the molecular weight of 190 kilodaltons. There's the P210 and the P230. The P190 is more common in Philly-positive B-cell ALL, and the P210 is more common in CML. Um, so you have, uh, this is almost like a, a biochem review. You've got the chromosome. Uh, on the chromosome, then you have this gene. That gene then leads to an MRA transcript, which you can measure, um, compared as a ratio to normal ABLE kinase. And then you've got the actual 
protein product, uh, which is what we're going to inhibit with a matinate, which comes uh, 20 years later. Um, and we do have a whole episode on imatinib and uh, how imatinib almost didn't make it to market and how people wanted to give up on its drug development. And uh, if not, that we, how we treat uh, drugs would be very, or how we treat cancer would be very different today. Um, and so on, on September 22nd, I think we should pay homage to 922. It changed how we think about cancer uh, and, and made us think of it as a genetic disease. Um, and that the gene is what leads to this. And this is um, in, in some ways not good because now we know more, but in some way um, perhaps bad because it, it, you might think we should, everything should be like CML. And that may or may not actually ever be the case that we find diseases like CML and maybe acute promyelocytic leukemia where there's one genetic change that is the, the keystone event and by by kind of reversing the the byproduct of that event, you can halt the disease, reverse the disease uh, relatively simply from a drug therapy or therapeutic standpoint. It's not the case for metastatic lung cancer. Even if you've got, you know, uh, uh, an EGFR mutation in the metastatic setting, uh, they, they do better, but they don't do as well as our CML patients uh, who, who do incredibly well uh, and probably are going to end up living normal duration of lives, we think, as long as they get access to their drug. All right, so on 922, that's what I have to say about 922. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, some more probably updates. There's a new drug approval, um, a supportive care drug approval that I think is interesting that we've covered in the past, but we'll talk more about. Uh, so stay tuned next week. Uh, thank you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib, and you can follow the podcast on both uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.